0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Erica Bacchioki, who is a legal scholar specializing in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching and sexual ethics. She's also a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center where you can find a number of her articles. Her latest book is The Rights of Woman: Reclaiming a Lost Vision, which is a intellectual history of the women's rights movement specifically in North America but more broadly post enlightenment i was recommended this book by mary harrington and it has absolutely blown me away i've been investigating the conversations around gender and women's rights for a few years now and have kind of seen these different patterns of rhetoric going back and forth and arguing for different rights and duties and with Erica's book, I was given a crash course, a very thorough crash course. So perhaps it's more of a 16-credit course on women's history and women's studies. But this book is basically exploring Mary Wollstonecraft's ideas. And within this book, you see arise the current Currents between liberal feminism, radical feminism, and this kind of trad feminism, which I don't know if that's actually a thing or not, but it seems like it kind of is or should be. I cannot recommend this book enough if you are a man or woman interested at all in what's going on with women and men in our current society and how the law impacts the family and what we should do with and about each other. And if you're not completely sold on my commendation, well, here is Erica Bakayoki to speak about the ideas in her book. You studied law? Why did you choose that path? What inspired that decision?
1: Yeah, that's actually a good question. So I was a women's studies student uh, and sociology student in at a very liberal college in Vermont, Middlebury College. That's where I first encountered actually Wilson Craft and other you know kind of feminist greats. And actually was a volunteer at one point for Bernie Sanders, <laughs> who has become far more famous obviously uh, <laughs> since twenty years ago when I volunteered uh, for him. I actually had sort of an you know, I call it an intellectual conversion, being an Augustinian, (laughs) and uh, just sort of came, it's sort of a long, long story, but started to really question the things I was being taught in women's studies classes, especially around the casual sex culture. What I saw were the tenets of feminism, which were sort of striving for freedom and equality, joining up with the sexual revolution. And I didn't articulate it this way. Obviously, this is a kind of key theme in the book. But what I saw was, you know, the idea of free love, women were not free. At least that's what I was sort of observing both in my own experience prior to college and then also um, in the people around me. So I started to sort of push back against that. And I ended up meeting some uh, people who are studying political philosophy, ended up reading a lot of political philosophy. And that got me to sort of change my major. (laughs) And I started studying um, the ancients, Plato, Aristotle, some other kind of pre-modern work, and went on then to go on to actually get a master's in theology, which I was sort of toying between uh, philosophy and theology, but had actually decided that I wanted to really study Thomas Aquinas, um, Augustine. And um, so I did that for a couple of years and then thought of doing a PhD in either political theory or potentially philosophy or theology. And I always have had a very practical bent to me. Part of it is really wanting to kind of be a translator. And so though I never wanted to practice law, <laughs> I did go to law school in the hopes of actually doing much of the work I'm doing now, which is kind of a legal theory. So I have kind of expertise in equal protection jurisprudence, and that's the kind of deep scholarship work that I've done before this book is law review articles um, around the equal protection clause, mm-hmm. abortion rights, that kind of thing. I went to law school and was much more interested in the theoretical stuff than law school provided, but I did get trained as a lawyer, which was, of course, very, very important. And then since then have really been um, kind of back at at the roots of doing a lot of more political theory and legal theory.
0: So law is the application of theory. That's right. Yeah, right. that's right. And so we're always kind of fighting over law, but there's a bunch of priors going into that. Um, that we don't necessarily always understand.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because people always said to me, "How could you study theology and then law? You know, aren't they contradictory? You know, and every and and it seems to me that no, you know, a, you know a much uh, there's a really rich account of law in the classical legal tradition that is actually um, you know making a comeback now, and you know it was really Thomas Hobbes who kind of took us off this path of um, really understanding law as. Kind of the command of reason and trying to discern law to discern what law ought to be out of the nature of things rather than as something arbitrary which is how um thomas hobbes understood it and so of course you know you'll uh, you know and i think that's how um americans certainly understand law is that it's kind of this arbitrary will of well people in a democracy um or the arbitrary will of some, you know uh, of the president or the, you know, but really, in the law, even in our understanding of jurisprudence, we're always wondering about the rational basis of things, um the reasonableness of things. we're always we're always relying on kind of law as as reason. And so there's a much richer understanding of what reason is in the pre-modern tradition. Um, it's much more kind of, open it's it's something Mm. more than just mere logic um i think you know since the enlightenment and and you know especially descartes bacon i mean it's reason is kind of scientific application or scientific study logic and that too was hobbes um and and the pre-modern understanding was much more open to the kind of nature of things um as Mm. they are in all of reality and so it's it's a bigger it's more capacious you would say reason than kind of just you know Applying sort of logical deduction. So both Descartes and Hobbes and others saw geometry as like the highest form of reason. Whereas, you know, the pre-moderns would would have seen contemplation and philosophy as the highest form of reason.
0: Wait, didn't Um, Plato, uh, wasn't Plato all into geometry? Wasn't that his? Yeah,
1: and, and, that's, and that's the thing, is that the pre-moderns, you know, they too were, were because they were interested in, in reality and in the nature of things, they were very much interested in science. You know, they obviously hadn't made the sorts of discoveries that were made during the scientific revolution and since, um, which are quite astonishing and amazing. But, yeah, certainly, I mean, Aristotle's physics, I mean, there's all sorts of, and, you know, there were errors. They made significant errors that, mm. um, uh, because they, you know, didn't have the sorts of tools with scientific you know, method—the sorts of tools that we have—they didn't have the sorts of insights that were had had later. But they were able to, you know, they started with observation, and they were able to observe a whole lot and and uh, get pretty far in science. Okay. Um, but there were important mistakes, um, biological mistakes, especially with Aristotle, which um, are very important in, in my work in terms of um, the rights of women, because he really, you know, he understood women or the female as a deformed male. Yeah. Because of you know all he could see was sperm. He didn't, you know, he thought men were doing all the heavy lifting when it came to uh, uh, creating a child. uh, It's amazing how
0: resilient that idea is. It's still popping up in current discourse where woman is just a inside out man or something like that. (laughs)
1: Isn't that true? Isn't that true? It is very resilient. And it's too bad, too, because it, you know, Aristotle um, has so much to offer, especially in ethics. And so he, because of that biological error, which really isn't his fault, I mean, he couldn't see, Uh, what we could see. Um, uh, You know, he's been sort of, you know, thrown out as someone who can really teach us a lot. And Mm -hmm. he certainly can teach us a whole lot.
0: One thing that I've been working toward and, and, It's almost like I've been having a conversation with you or at least with this book for a long time now because I keep on asking these questions in this pursuit of trying to understand gender and Mm -hmm. all the conversations around that, from sexuality to to feminism and all the different kinds of feminisms and then all the different kinds of men's rights. One question that I just want to get to and trying to get to is what is woman, Mm -hmm. right? And if we can't define that, uh, then you know we have to define that because law will protect or define woman regardless of you know uh, of our understanding of it. And one way of dealing with certain aspects of gender ideology that results in in trans ideology and this profusion of just feelings and and this gender as just this kind of soul like thing that mm-hmm. they kind of start ebbing into pre modern conceptions of what this soul thing is. Um, one counter to that is that you have uh, one body that produces these gametes and this other body that produces these other gametes and therefore, ergo, large, small, the woman and resources and all this stuff. And it goes on from there. If you break down the biological reality between male and female, you start to get somewhere. But I still wonder, what is woman? What is man? How do we conceptualize these things? We don't go around seeing each other as gamy producers. We don't do that. We do have stereotypes that we lean into. We do have these, uh, basically, these archetypes or stereotypes that we're dealing with, whether we like it or not. And so we have to think about these things, not reactionarily against stereotypes, but we have to formulate very solid ideas of male and female. And the critical move that you and Wollstonecraft are making is that you... Define woman and man as a unit that produces the family. You you start with the unit of the family. And that's where we begin to theorize, it, it seems like. Um, is that fair? What do you think about all that stuff that I just said? <laughs> where do you land on this?
1: yeah yeah so i guess i would say that yes um understood us as familial beings and social beings as first and foremost those who have duties to one another you know yeah. today in our kind of very american way of thinking we always think we're kind of beings with rights rights to self-creation and so for her yes we're very much familial beings because the family is of course necessary because of vulnerability and dependency she says we're impelled to pair And so that's certainly true. Um, and we have all sorts of data about how, how children truly are in all best, you know, in all possible circumstances raised, raised best and, and fair best when they have their own mother and father in a happy, uh, functional, stable marriage. Both the left and the right acknowledge that. But for Wollstonecraft, there's just sort of response to the other things you were saying is that what the family does is to help to sort of nurture who the person is. And so both men and women are she would say rational creatures. And that's how you define both man and woman. And so she was railing against Jean-Jacques Rousseau in particular, who in his Emile, is setting out, you know, his book on education is setting out kind of the best education for a man. And you have to remember that these liberal theorists, Locke, Rousseau, Mill are really talking about men very much so. Yeah. And women are at that point in the private sphere and they're kind of taking care of well children and the home, right? She's railing against this because he has a chapter on uh, Sophie and who is the best mate for for the Emil, uh, for this, this man, the Emile. What does Rousseau say is necessary for Sophie? Well, it's really that all of her education should be toward pleasing man um, and that she should be uh, weak and very pure and have a reputation for chastity, or she should have chastity, but also a kind of a reputation be known for her chastity in order to keep men you know her man pure, and that she should never kind of think about the highest things. She should rely on man for that. Uh, she should never sort of think about man as, as he is, but only the man, the men around her, the very concrete men around her, so she can please him. Hmm. And so, Wollstonecraft is really railing against this and saying, "No, you know, women are more than just kind of this one virtue of chastity. Women, all of the all of the virtues should be open to woman, um, just like man." And in fact, men should also be practicing chastity, because that would be good for the family, too. But so she's defining woman as a rational creature, okay. but not just as a rational creature, but one who has an end. And this is where the kind of pre-modern and Wilson really comes out, that reason has an end, and that is virtue and wisdom is excellence. And so both men and women are capable of this excellence that it is shored up, that is nurtured in the family. And so, yes, we're familial beings who need the family, to help us develop into the kinds of moral beings that we are. And, and that the work between a mother and father is really kind of the highest, the highest of social duties, um, in the work that they do with their children.
0: Mm-hmm. And so this might be a kind of a eddy, but what do you mean by, could you delve a little bit more into rational being, we have these big words, yeah. reason, rational, even voice of reason. What is reason? What is critical thinking? What is rationality? What What does yeah. that kind of mean?
1: yeah yeah no that's good so the understanding of of the pre-moderns is that you know we have an ordered soul and don't think religious for soul obviously the christians think uh religious but for aristotle the soul is kind of the living kind of principle uh, that that differentiates a person, a live person from a corpse. It's, it's that which sort of the animating principle. And so reason is the animating principle for uh, the human being. And so therefore, the human being um, is most excellent when living according to the rational principle, the highest principle within them. Well, what are the other parts of the human being? Well, you know, Augustine would come to see the will. But before that, For the the pre-moderns it was uh the passions right and so for both plato and aristotle or the appetites and those are those are shared with the animals and so what differentiates human beings from animals is the ability for the reason to guide the passions and to master the passions so that one can be free from the passions in order to judge things correctly to live well to make the right choice to be just to be patient um to live virtue and so basically to live according to reason is synonymous with living according to living virtuously living excellently because it's the highest part of us and so what happens in modern philosophy is that ordered soul is flipped and so reason then becomes you know just a kind of a a power that rationalizes the passions which lead and so hume actually says that You know reason is the slave of the passions and so reason just sort of the passions dictate my desires dictate what i should do you know at this moment as fleeting as they may be and so i do that thing um and then the reason is just there to 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 rationalize what my passions you know i take that cookie and then my reason says later well why why is it that i did that instead of having the desire to take the cookie and then having my reason determine whether is it too close to dinner have I had enough? And reason, it's a, it's a habit, right? It's a habit that enables me to uh, think about these things clearly. If I follow the dictates of my passions all the time, my reason will be weakened to be able to sort of be free enough to determine whether I should take the cookie or not.
0: Yeah, that is uh, the writer and the elephant uh, is a metaphor that Jonathan Haidt uh, has mm. explored. And his work in psychology and social psychology has basically shown that in large part, Uh, We are, we do just do the thing and then afterwards we make up the rationalization. And the smarter you are, the better you are at crafting uh, rationalizations for uh, your behavior. I think the key to what you were saying Mm -hmm. is that it's a habit. It's habituated. We don't just get free will. We don't just get reason. We actually have to practice it. Right. And when we are rational creatures, if we, if we are rational creatures, how does it follow that there is a difference between woman and men in law? Or how does that translate into conceiving of woman in law if we start from the rational
1: Right, right. And I just just to be clear, too, that passions are super important. So I want to get to your question. But um, passions, you know, they're they're that which sort of um, animates us to move forward. And so they're good. Wollstonecraft sees them as very, very good. But they just have to, you know, I mean, such a a wonderful image from uh, Plato's Phaedrus is is the is the charioteer. And that's maybe similar to what Jonathan Heights getting on. I'm not sure, but the charioteer has the horses are the appetites, but the charioteer governs the horses and we want horses. This is wonderful, right? The horses lead us and move and, and inspire us. But, we need to be the governor of, of the passions. You're right, because otherwise, where do we go? We don't, we don't want to go right. exactly where only where our passions passions take us. So, um, and so what's the difference for Wollstonecraft? The man and the woman are two kind of modes of being human and have different bodies. And so um, the fact that those gametes are different and that um, Aristotle, right away, that we got some biology wrong, he very much saw that, you know, the woman reproduces inside herself and the man re- reproduces outside himself. And that's the real fundamental difference between a man and a woman. Now there's all sorts of hormones within us that enable that reproduction to come about, right? So men have tons of testosterone, women have estrogen, and those hormonal differences are really significant and significantly affect even our brains. And so though we have, you know, we would say we're rational creatures with rational souls or the rational animating principle these bodies of ours very much influence every cell in our in our you know in us and so that's where i you know talk a lot about sexual asymmetry and so the fact that the woman reproduces inside herself and the man reproduces, reproduces outside himself is incredibly significant for how we live right because hmm. Well, what's sexual asymmetry? You know, we talk, usually we talk about sexual difference. Well, just that there are these differences between men and women. I like sexual asymmetry a lot better because when it comes to sex and sexual intercourse, the fact that a woman gets pregnant after the men and, when men, a man and woman engage in the same act or can get pregnant, that's basically the question of, of how to respond to that animates all of feminism, feminist thought. And so the mm-hmm. question is, you know, how does, how does one personally respond to sexual asymmetry and how does a culture injustice respond to sexual asymmetry. And so the book, The Rights of Women, is really looking at how different ages from starting with Wollstonecraft, but then kind of different strains within feminist thought from Wollstonecraft on, have dealt with the fact of sexual asymmetry, uh, the fact that women can become mothers, and being a mother is both this great privilege, bearing another human being in your in your yeah. body, but it is also much more of a burden for women than for men. And so, what does that mean? Um, and and where does culture and law go with that? And obviously, it goes very you know different ways at different times.
0: Yeah. The uh, how does? I guess there's a lot of different answers to this question, but how does law? How does law interact with that? How does? the body of law affect the body of woman or treat the body of woman and where it begin and end and stop and
1: right so i mean that's a it's a historical question in some sense so yeah. um you know we look first at well <laughs> that's what the whole book is about right <laughs> um so there's a lot to say in answer to that i guess where i would start first is with the very first women's rights advocates in our country Um, You know, we think of them as the suffragists, but the very first thing that they did was move to recognize joint property ownership because, you know, at the time of both the founding, but even well into the, you know, the early 19th century, you know, America was a very agrarian landscape, very agrarian economy. Uh, So in the pre-industrial home, women and men were incredibly collaborative working together, to sort of meet necessities, um, and so of course they did different work. Um, men with, uh, you know, in general, um, almost always superior strength, did sort of different work than than what women were doing in the home. But both were collaborating very much in the home, and so you know there was sort of no reason to really think about gender roles or sex roles very much because there was this great shared um, work in the home um, because the home was such a big sphere, and so there was a lot of respect for what women did there and the shared work of nurturing children and so in the american landscape as a uh, republican government everyone very much the founders very much understood that a republican government needs particularly virtuous citizenry at that point male citizenry and so what were women first and foremost uh, maybe they had been thought of as only breeders uh, or in mm-hmm. the past but then for rousseau these kind of you know pure and chaste um, private individuals who kept kept their men uh, on task, yeah. um, but for the Republicans, there's this understanding of kind of Republican motherhood that they took on this big, important task of of forming their sons, but also their daughters in in the virtues necessary for Republican government to have a free people.
0: That's a very important point, and it's something that we're running up against now. Um, why does a republic necess- need virtuous people?
1: Right and that's and that's a key sort of question um and one of the most important points of the book, because Wollstonecraft was herself a small art republican, and so understood virtue to be really necessary for a republic, she wasn't not in an instrumental sense though, so some of the founders may have seen virtue as more instrumental, but I think for Wollstonecraft and for some of the founders, they understood virtue is necessary for a happy life for human flourishing, and so why is it necessary well Again, in this pre-modern account, in order to be free, in order to be a kind of self-governing person, you know, we need to have, again, uh, our reason dictating things and not sort of living by whim of our of our passions. And so a free, you know, a free government uh, needs a free people. Self-government needs self-governing people. And that's really a very different understanding of freedom than we have today. Yeah. Um You know, and our understanding of freedom now today is kind of it's a freedom without an end, freedom for its own sake uh, to, again, for self-creation. It's very self-focused, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. as, you know, doing whatever I want, again, really, according to the dictates of of my desire, my passion, uh, my preferences, those kinds of things without thinking about kind of the common good, the good of the whole.
0: Yeah. And now a word from our sponsor. kind of these mantras about human rights, Uh this group's rights are human rights, all this stuff, talk about rights, and then you're like, well, how do you, what do you mean rights? Rights for what? It's almost a verboten question because the rights are for you to do whatever you want and for everybody else to respect you. It even gets kind of tyrannical where you have to, there's now demands that you validate somebody's identity because that's their right to be validated. So it's not that's just right. a right... It becomes more and more selfish. It's almost like a kind of a black hole of of this language around rights and freedoms is kind of inverted at one point or at some point. And and it's interesting in the, as the conversation among feminists progresses, how this, this kind of, this dialogue begins to happen between, well, you set it up as a dialogue between what Wolf, Wolfstonecraft is talking about, about the pursuit of excellence and how everything is for excellence. And then this Lockean Hobbesian individualism and how everything should be about the self and self-determination. And one hiccup in that is the child is the baby. It keeps on coming back to, if you separate woman from, from birth, then what is the woman anymore? And we see that now a lot because if, if sex doesn't matter, then sex is meaningless. I mean, as in, Sex itself is meaningless, not just the act. One way that you order the book is that we go from an agrarian society to an industrial society, and that changes the landscape that changes the dimensions of the home and then the interaction or the conceptualization of woman how How does industrialization change that yeah, yeah,
1: so that's sort of the key question is you know behind industrialization, you have these liberal theorists like Locke, Hobbes, etc., who understood um, the individual. I mean, it was the kind of the first time you start to have like right original uh, or individual rights versus sort of an understanding of persons in community, etc. So when the individual rights are when you have this kind of um, uh, rights-bearing persons, they are again men, and it's men who enter the public sphere, and not only do they enter the public sphere to engage in kind of representative government if they're property at that point, but anyway, but they also, um, engage in the industrial workplace. And so where are the women? Well, women are in the private sphere at that point. And, uh, whereas there was this collaborative agrarian sort of shared, I'm not saying all men were great at that point. I'm sure there was, you know, abuse, et cetera, whatever. Uh, not everyone was virtuous in the agrarian, you know, but there is a sharing um, because out of necessity. So when men leave into the industrial workplace, um, there are all sorts of temptations in the, in the cities that are building up. Uh, there are bars and brothels. And, uh, and what ends up happening is that the man who is conceived as this kind of autonomous individual With, um, you know, this dependent wife at home, at least in terms of how the law understood it, in terms of Mm. coverture, which isn't a term we've used yet. So it's when a man and woman are married, a woman loses all of her property rights and and rights to her personal property, too, that she had brought into the marriage. And so there's a legal dependency and a legal subordination of women. But again, during the agrarian time, it wasn't so um, pronounced. But when man goes in and he starts earning wages, there is. Mm an economic dependency that begins to become very pronounced. So women become dependents and man is kind of these autonomous wage earn it, earners. And so that's when women start to kind of rise up <laughs> and hmm. form. Because a
0: lot um, of abuses form in that. Well, Th- that's right. That, asymmetry, uh, that leads asymmetry leads to uh, that's right. irresponsibility. Uh, yeah. And, some so, sort of checks and so men
1: in the industrial workplace, which was very harsh, then are drinking more you know, visiting brothels. And this is why you have the temperance movement, which of course is very, very, very much made up of women and movements for joint property ownership, which is separate property ownership is something basically where you say, okay, a woman, whatever she earns, she she owns in the family. It's kind of like a you know, a separate checking account or something where she deposits her own money. Well, not many women were out there earning money at the very beginning of industrialization, right? They were home doing the work of the home still in a large part, uh, either taking care of their own family shops or um, taking part of doing the very productive work of the still then agrarian home while their husbands are going out into to, to earn wages and so they want joint property ownership which is basically to say that the work of the home is important work and that um, it should be in mm. both of our names it shouldn't just be in the name of of the man and that when it were a man to die ahead of a woman that she would have half of the You know this is basic to what we know now, but it took a long, long time for that to come into being. Um, So then, when women are then pulled into the industrial workplace, there's uh, sort of this shift in how we understand. I'm sort of blasting forward. We've got protective labor legislation because of the the different types of you know. There's a recognition that women, because of the asymmetries of reproduction. Are the ones who bear children, um, and so the the industrial workplace should be they should be protected from from the real harshness of the industrial workplace by mm-hmm. um, maximum hours legislation and that type of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there was there were women on both sides of that. There were some women who said, "No, no, no, we need to have more of a strict equality where men and women are seen as much more the same, because otherwise women won't be hired." And it's the same sort of arguments you have um, fast forward into the into the you know nineteen seventies.
0: That idea of property is another interesting thing because it means one thing when we're talking about our earnings or our mutual property, like the stuff that we own, uh, the stuff that we manage, and then the capital that we gain on top of that. But when that idea of property is applied to motherhood, again, there's something completely – there's there's another order of – it's really – it's a huge leap to go from declaring – individuals as property or owners and managing their own property. But when you try to put that on to a child, there's a lot of questions there. And again, like with property, when you think of woman reproducing inside of herself, that's the whole, one of the abortion rights arguments is that it's her property, it's her own body. How does that develop over over time?
1: Yeah. And that, of course, is one of the real key parts of the early parts of the book. And then, of course, the later part, too, when I get into more modern times. Um, But it's just fascinating to see that some of the women really understood had a more of a Lockean um, view. So that's Alice Paul, more Elizabeth Cady Stanton, where they saw rights is necessary for sort of self-ownership. That's kind of the more Lockean view.
0: Yeah.
1: And then the Craftian view is that rights are really necessary to fulfill those duties that we have. So Craft really, you know, she didn't mm. see us first and foremost as these kind of rights-bearing individuals, but is, but is um, that it's necessary for us to fulfill our duties. And if we look around, really, our con- very concrete duties – are really the things that we see most obviously uh, are concrete duties to our uh, within our family, uh, to each other, to take care of each other. If the vulnerable didn't have anyone taking care of them, they wouldn't live, right? Those duties to, to the vulnerable, to the dependent in our own families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the earliest women's rights advocates, whether they were Lockeans or more Wilson Craftians, and they really were kind of both, um, as I show in the book, they all understood the human being within them uh, when they were pregnant, As very much in need of care and nurturance and not as a, as, as, um, as property that they owned. In fact, you know, they would push against that because, um, you know, they had been owned as property. I mean, that's kind of what Coverture, you know, how Coverture understood women. And so they certainly wouldn't have thought as the child as someone that they could own. And in fact, that's why they... All of them, whether they were kind of the Lockeans or the Millians, as I talk about it, the Wilson Craftians, or uh, you could separ- you know you could call them all different sorts of things. They all understood um, what they called voluntary motherhood. Um, as the way to deal with reproductive asymmetries. And so they were very much against abortion. Now, abortion was beginning to be practiced more and more. Before the mid-19th century, uh, it was incredibly dangerous. And so Mm -hmm. to attempt to abort your child basically meant that you might take your own life. And so it was becoming safer because of the advances in surgical techniques, and then later with antibiotics and things like that. There were women, uh, one very famous one, Madame Ristel in New York, who started uh, doing more and more abortions. And so at the, around the same time, you also have uh, biology advancing to the point where it had become clear that when sperm and egg come together, that there's a new individual. And so of course they didn't have ultrasounds, but they knew that that's what was going on. They had microscopes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the, there were doctors who are lobbying for restrictions on abortion. Um, and that's what you know, those are the 19th century abortion uh, laws that were struck down in row. But these women's advocates were very much abortion against abortion as well, because they did not believe that they had kind of a legitimate authority over their unborn child. Rather, they thought that they needed to nurture and care for that child because it was another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, I wanted to kind of point out. Some people don't buy it. You know, they say, well, how could that be possible? And so I want to just read um, Victoria Woodhull. So she is one of the earliest advocates for constitutional equality for women. She was not a religious person at all. She was the first woman to run for president on the Equal Rights uh, Party platform. And I think they got Frederick Douglass to run alongside her or something Mm -hmm. like that. The the history is a little tricky uh, still. But she says many women would be shocked at the thought of killing their child after birth deliberately destroy them previously. If there is any difference in the actual crime, we should be glad to have those who practice the latter pointed out. The truth of the matter is that it's just as much a murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition as it is to destroy it after the fully developed form is attained. For it is the self same life that is taken. She, along with people like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they spoke about abortion as antenatal murder, you know, child murder. These kind, this kind of language. And so, what do they want to do about it? Well, yeah, they were okay with the legal restrictions for sure, but they they pushed for something they called voluntary motherhood. And that was basically because we have no legitimate authority, of course, to take the life of our child. Own child. We should have the say as to when we engage in sex. It was kind of a a movement against male sexual presumption. Um, Mm. to presume that a man, because he was married to his wife, could have sex whenever he wanted. And so voluntary motherhood was something that um, understood that men have greater libidos than women, um, more, more sexual desire for women. Um, but then especially, so that's one of the sexual asymmetries, right? But mm-hmm. the obvious asymmetry that women can end up pregnant. And so this is what they yeah. wanted. And they actually advocated abstinence. And so, uh, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton would go along and give these talks to women, only, you know, women only audiences talking about how to advocate abstinence, especially when they had like drunken husbands and had to kind yeah. of fight for their own self-sovereignty against their husbands, um, you know, basically, you know, raping them in marriage. And so that was something that, you know, it, it's this kind of insight of the early women's rights advocate, uh, early women's rights movement that's really been entirely lost um, when when women hmm. kind of capitulate to the property control, property, uh, sorry, population control advocates in the, in the late 1960s uh, to, to think that abortion is necessary for women's equality.
0: Yeah. And how does birth control work in that, um, in that era? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. So, again, really nascent methods of birth control. There's always been kind of birth control around (laughs) and, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, tease and or attempts at birth control. Obviously, the pill isn't um, isn't, uh, you know, um, manufactured until the late 1950s at the behest of Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger, of course, the uh, founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, goes to Europe to find birth control methods in the 19th. uh, I'm trying to think. Now I'm trying to remember the history of um when she when she actually went, but in nineteen twenty she was really agitating for birth control and was ran up and against the Comstock laws that was basically that were basically saying, no, you can't advertise for birth control. Now, these earlier um, women's rights advocates, the ones in the mid you know nineteenth century and late nineteenth century, were very much against birth control as well. Well why would that be? right? Yeah. Because they really believed that um if you separate kind of sex and reproduction, that you're going to cause men to not be exercising the sexual self mastery that they thought was so important, kind of the virtue of self mastery that that we also see um Wollstonecraft talking about basically chastity that would free men to engage in extramarital sex and uh, you know, procure prostitutes and things like that. So they really thought it did a lot of damage to women, to free men in that way. And that's really what we saw happen, you know, with the pill, um, of course, right on the heels of the pill comes the sexual revolution where there's a far more sexual risk taking um, mm-hmm. both inside of marriage, but especially outside of marriage, because it frees people up, of course, to think that they're, you know, they can control reproduction, ensure that, you know, pregnancy will not come about. And so early on, you know, Margaret Sanger is pushing for birth control in part because um, she really wanted to prevent abortion. Um, so I think that that's something that we, that we forget, too.
0: Hmm. You spoke about you were studying, you were taking women's studies, and then you you started thinking beyond that. Um, Or you you started to see that the promise of sexual freedom was having asymmetries even then. So it seems like on on one reading, and it's not the complete reading, but on one reading, the the pill and abortion or these ways of controlling the consequences of sex allow for sexuality to kind of, proliferate, uh, under the guise of freedom and liberalism, but there's still other consequences to that. You see, what did you notice or what did you, how did you see that, that there was asymmetries even without pregnancy being, and, uh, the necessary outcome of sex?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the very obvious one, apart from pregnancy and the fact that women are the ones who, you know, need to to deal with the birth control and women are the ones who have to go have the abortions and men can kind of just walk away there's also really the asymmetries that come with um, kind of the emotional connectivity that um, happens because of estrogen and oxytocin um, kind of blazing through a woman when she engages in sex just like when she has a baby just like when she nurses a baby um, so there's you know much more connectivity between a woman and a man. Now, this may not be true for a woman, you know, who's watching this, perhaps, and is engaged in lots and lots and lots and lots of casual sex. Those kinds of um, connections sort of seem to dry up for women who have who have lots of um, casual sex, hmm. but for women who are engaging in it, you know, at the beginning, say in the beginning of college or or in their um, high school years, etc you know, women are much more connected and looking for that attention from her sexual partner. Whereas a man, because of testosterone is very driven to have sex, especially sexual intercourse and not really care about the sexual needs of, of the woman who, you know, orgasms Mm -hmm. in a very different way than a man does through kind of a slow, progressive man really taking care of her. Um, Mm -hmm. and a man, you know, a man with testosterone is set to have the fast orgasm with Um, you know, uh, with intercourse. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he no longer has this hormonal connection, at least as nearly as much. And so can can much more easily walk away emotionally as well as physically because he's not carrying a child for pregnancy to occur. So I think that... Mm -hmm. Is, um, is really significant and explains a lot of the reason why you see more and more women pushing back on the casual sex culture, seeing it as really male-oriented. I mean, you also see a lot of women still engaging in it and I think not realizing how, how male-oriented it really is.
0: One of the big confrontations of this book that, that is coming to light to me is that it's demanding that sex is treated as something important and valuable and almost sacred in a way, or it's, it's saying that once we deviated from thinking of sex as a sacrament or um, treating it as a part of a, a marriage, there's a number of different erosions of the fabric of the psyche and, and the, uh, the idea of the self um, is, is impacted when sex is not treated as important. And um, I guess kind of the question or one of the questions is, is how, does, how does law and uh, conception of sex as valuable, where, where does that – do they intersect at all? Do you have to think of sex as, as sacred or have an idea of the sacred in order to you know, base like uh, some sort of law um, or idea of justice Or is this just kind of a cultural thing, divorced from law?
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting, just, you know, in terms of intellectual history, there's a lot that has um, moved sex from being something that's both sacred, but also a private kind of activity (laughs) to something that is kind of this necessary to our very identities And so pushing against or saying that there should be any types of restrictions on sexual activity for the good, I think, of of women themselves and sort of the happiness of women engaging in sex that has sort of pre-existing commitment. And I think that's much, much better for women. And that's what marriage really is. It's channeling sex into a stable commitment where women can be cared for by a man and loved and nurtured. And then also um, can be the father of, of, of any children that should come from a sexual union. And so when sex becomes identity, it becomes very difficult to kind of start to criticize that. I think the way that it seems to me that, that law, needs to deal with this is just by dealing with the realities of sex, again the asymmetries, by uh, doing two things, namely, um, one is the reality that sex still, despite you know, 50, 60 years of a birth control and abortion, creates babies, babies who grow um, and are nurtured in the bodies of women. And that, you know, relying on abortion in order to kind of equalize things between men and women is really piling up babies instead of sort of changing society to really be hospitable to both women and their children, women and uh, women who are capable of having children, fully understanding woman, right? And so I think getting abortion off the table, restricting abortion a lot more, enables people to understand that there is potentially a baby who is present in a woman's body after sex. Not always. Birth control fails. Method and um, user failure are quite prevalent. If abortion is restricted, then it allows, I think, men and women, um, to take more seriously what sex really is. The other thing I would say is that all the smut online porn, I think is doing immense damage to both men and women. And when it comes to sex, And so I think there needs to be challenges. You know, I don't know. It's a huge industry, but there needs to be courageous enough people who will erect laws against porn. I'm not sure how this works because I don't entirely understand how you would restrict porn on the Internet. But I think we've just got to try again because it's it's really uh, distorts male and female relationships. It distorts Hmm. how men see women, how they think sex is supposed to go. So, I mean, I think those if those two things were done, um, Hmm we could sort of reorder how we understand sex and, um, what, uh, see, you know, uh, is, is um, Hey, uh, can you splice these things together. Or?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to take extra care to edit this one. I could just do a whole series on this. I, I actually, I just wanted to suggest that you do do a series of lectures on this. If you don't already have something planned, like a 10, one hour lecture series and uh, post it on YouTube or something because there's so much material in here. Um, but what is your current um, take on the liberal feminist versus rad fem or what, what's kind of called gender critical feminism and liberal feminism? They're kind of batting each other. Uh, You know they're kind of hitting each other pretty hard, but there's this other kind of feminism that's kind of a a trad feminism. It's kind of called um, that. I I I hear a lot. I hear you doing more thorough work on erecting like a a third way, uh, or you're you're basing your arguments in some very uh, very deep um, ideas that go back much further than a a lot of the stuff that I've encountered. Uh, Are you? kind of aware of the currents, the current cultural climb right now, and and do you have a take on that? And uh, where do you think that, uh, is there a spot for, what would you have feminism be today if you could be the tyrant?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't want to be a tyrant. <laughs> yeah, so I you know, I think that liberal feminism in, say, the Millian form, which takes shape, manifests very well in a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, got us somewhere. And so hmm. Mill writes, you know, John Stuart Mill writes his Subjection of Women, has a lot to recommend it. I think he really gets the reasons why it's difficult for a culture to sort of come face-to-face with the subordination of women and do something about it. And I think he's really insightful in a lot of ways. The trouble is that he wants, or at least his followers want, but I think him to want a strict equality, a strict kind of equality, and a liberty that is really for self-creation. If you have a Wollstonecraft who saw freedom for excellence, for the exercise of virtue, for the, you know, for exercising um, responsibly our, our duties um, to, to others in, in the home and then and then outside and in the broader world, um, you know, using our gifts to push things forward for humanity. Mill was much more concerned with kind of originality, you know, each person being kind of uh, the individual is entirely sovereign over his life. And for women woman, too, he wanted this kind of originality. It was, again, very self-focused. And so, you know, I think that there's something to be said for sort of the million and Ruth Bader Ginsburg strict equality when it comes to the vast majority of work and that kind of thing, education that doesn't impinge on our reproductive differences, because I think that. It basically, Mill articulates the anti-discrimination principle that Ruth Bader Ginsburg then does, I think, heroic work in the early 1970s to bring into our laws, which is that there shouldn't be these kind of arbitrary determinations of women not being able to be in different workplaces or educational facilities, etc. That's not right, the right way to go about it. And so women should be judged as men are as individuals. And so I think that there's something to recommend that. The trouble is when you, again, you've got these individuals who go out into the workplace, into the market, um, into, you know, participating in Republican government, they're individuals in the Millian, the Lockean, the Hobbesian understanding. They're conceived of as autonomously, you know, and so they go out and they can be kind of autonomous workers for Mm -hmm. the capitalists. What happens is that women aren't autonomous when they have a child within them. And so to kind of meet that standard of liberal citizenship, Hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and those who follow her see that the child has to be left behind so just as you know the woman was in the private sphere as a dependent on the man she was sort of to be left there when she comes out into the public sphere her dependents need to be left back and so whether that means with like you know universal daycare or that that means um, not allowing the child to be born at all so that right. there can be this kind of liberal equality or what I call market equality that, you know, it was that, you know, traditionally men were breadwinners and women were the caregivers. Well, now everyone should be breadwinners and we're not really sure who's doing the care. And so that's a real problem. And I think okay. that's and, and you said this earlier, but the great real important thing is that, you know, Wilson Craft was among the only Enlightenment thinkers who well was a woman, right? And so that gave her insight into this critical difference is that women nurture children in their wombs and then especially in early caregiving right with breastfeeding and that type of thing which she very very much thought was was a beautiful way for for the um the child and the mother to to come to really have a great affection and solidarity with one another Hmm. so that's a problem and so the liberal theorists kind of didn't really see that at all because they saw women and children as in the private sphere so it's a real problem for liberal feminism because they can't account for what to do with children. They can't account in their okay. understanding of equal citizenship, what to do with children.
0: So children um, are kind of just, um, they're renters in the property of the woman, kind of. They're, they're kind of uh, up to a point and you kind of have to kind of erase their humanity in order for the abortion thing to, to go forward.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, certainly, right. They're, they're like property, okay. right? That's right. It's really tragic, you know, and, and we've sort of convinced ourselves, even though we have ultrasound, even though we can see into the womb now that this is not this being is not part of the human community, even though, you know, what is it within the uterus? It's, it's something else. It's a piece of my property. And then when it just comes right through the birth canal, something changes mysteriously. And it's a mm-hmm. person. Um, well, I think it goes back to really what you were saying
0: themselves. about, um about men reproducing outside of themselves. And then that kind of is the underpinning of a liberal philosophy. And then therefore, the woman, the child is the reproduc, is only human when it's outside of self. But the problem right. that, even with that is that the child takes years to become an individual, even after the gestation process. So
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so there's a complete kind of denial of dependency and vulnerability and the caregiving that happens. And that, that is neat that, that all of us, you know, are grateful, regardless of how, you know, wonderful our parents are, mm. um, to have gotten us at least to this place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where we are—that someone had to do that for us—and it takes a lot of work. It and it's serious work, and it's not just, you know. I think sometimes we think of parenting as creating these future consumers because we think of ourselves as mere consumers, you know, mm-hmm. or even producers, future workers. But that's not really what being a human being is, right? I mean, that's a very materialist account of being human. So when you think of human beings as something far different, whether you have a religious view where there's actually a transcendent destiny. Or if you have a more sort of pre-modern account where their goal is happiness their goal is human flourishing and so they need all sorts of help to become independent to become happy to become good to become people you want around to become yes productive citizens but also good friends, good neighbors, people who you can count on, good citizens, those things, I, it seems to me, are just as important, if not more important to human flourishing than certainly, you know, creating kind of consumers, creating producers. We want to create people who can be good friends because we all need friends to be human, <laughs> right? And that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And so that's yeah. why the work of the home, which has been basically, again, it was shoved into the, you know, the private sphere for, for liberalism. Meanwhile, everything is parasitic upon the work of the home um what do you mean by that you know it's um that the work of the home where again you know people become trustworthy because they learn not to tell lies where people learn to respect one another where people learn to share be fair be just where people learn to be patient or not all of these different things are so necessary to every other good you know economic civic political good there is because we need to have especially in a republic we need to have trustworthy people, especially in a capitalist economy, we need to have trustworthy people. And if you don't learn that in the home, then you're sort of left with, well, a lot of corruption. You know, if you're sort of put in front of a TV or thought that you're just supposed to be a future consumer, then you're not going to learn the sort of habits of heart and mind that are necessary to really Mm -hmm. um, enable you to be a functioning, good, um, happy friend and potentially, you know, hopefully leader in whatever whatever sphere you're in.
0: So what is what is this um i guess it's not really a, a feminism then? it sounds like a humanism uh kind of argument um it, it's bigger than than something encapsulates the feminism uh, that you're kind of outlining at least in my imagination um but what how does feminism as it is manifesting now how could it change or what are some of the properties about it that uh could change how 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 do you correct liberal feminism or disrupt it in a to affect your conception?
1: Yeah, again, I mean it's um, bringing about sort of an understanding of reality, hmm. and that's something that we're just fleeing from all the time. I mean, as you mentioned, sort of the transgender ideology is a real—is it just an entire flight from reality, a flight from biological reality, um, especially? And so. I think that, you know, we kind of need a realist feminism. Um, you know, I talk about mm-hmm. a dignitarian feminism. It's hard to label things, but at the end of the book, I talk about a dignitarian feminism, and I and I mean by that two different dignity in two different ways, kind of a horizontal and a vertical way. So horizontally, that we each have dignity as rational creatures. That as Wollstonecraft understood it, we are certainly, if we look around, we're not all equal. We're not equal in our thinking abilities. We're not equal, equally attractive. We're not equal in our virtue. We're not certainly not mm-hmm. equal uh, in the families we're born into, in their wealth, etc. But we all are equal in our capacity for moral improvement, moral development, wherever we stand. You know, if we're born into a family where we're taught all sorts of things, or if we're born into a family where we're basically, you know, taught to be couch potatoes or be on screens, we still have the capacity for moral improvement and moral development. And that's where our equality exists, is is this moral equality. That kind of realism or that kind of dignity, that horizontal dignity is important. But then there's this older account of dignity, which is dignitas or honor and that is you know the honor of in living life excellently in recognizing and we recognize excellence in athletes in entrepreneurs um occasionally in leaders though that they're hard to come by right Mm. excellence in poetry and writing and music for sure you know and so there are excellent human beings and how do we we identify them all the time when we see someone who's patient in the face of you know um long suffering when we see someone who's kind when they probably shouldn't i mean that's an excellent human being we do recognize that mm-hmm. why do we want justice you know why do we think because something in us commands us to hmm. be just or at least for someone else to be just right um there's something inside us that wants justice you know we're not just sort of these blank slates uh that are just kind of consuming choosing individuals. But we have, you know, in the under older understanding is that there's something inside us, our reason commands us to do good and avoid evil. And I think um, mm-hmm. if we if we talk through these things, instead of yelling at each other, we would come to see that that's why we want racial justice. That's why we want sex equality. That's why we want freedom. That's why we want to push back on the real inequalities economically, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why did you write this book? What was the what was the moment where you thought, I, I have to do this? This is what I have to do now. <laughs>
1: That's an interesting question. It was a long process in a sense that I had done a lot of work on uh, law review articles, especially digging into equal kind of equality arguments for abortion rights. And they seemed to, as I said, sort of rely on this male normative view of, of equality or view of the liberal citizen. And so I really wanted to, so I had pushed back against that in kind of our constitutional scheme, but I wanted to kind of get hmm. behind the rights theories of someone like Ginsburg and then, um, my intellectual hero, Marianne Glendon. And so the book started as a kind of comparison between the two of them. Hmm. And then I realized I had to go back further because I had to understand, I mean, you probably don't even know who Marianne Glendon is. Maybe you do, but uh, not enough people do. And so it didn't really matter that Erica Bakayaki thought Marianne Glendon was right and Ruth Peter Ginsburg was wrong because anyone who knew me would already know that and anybody else wouldn't care. <laughs> um, and so I you know, was reading back further and I reread for the first time since— being a women's studies student, Mary Wollstonecraft's *A Vindication of the Rights of Woman*, and I was kind of shocked. And this is now years ago, but I was shocked because I must have read excerpts of her that made her look like a female Locke, John Locke, or or Thomas Paine. She just looked, you know, from the excerpts I read, like a thoroughgoing liberal, you know, proto-feminist who wanted equal education mm-hmm. for women. And then when I read her, having the background I do in more pre-modern philosophy. I just was astonished that she had all of these elements of kind of pre-modern thought and came to see that her own teacher, Richard Price, also, you know, that his his book on ethics has as a kind of, you know, cover epitaphs of Cicero and Plato. And so he, too, was really steeped in in pre-modern thought. And so a lot of people who were reading Wollstonecraft didn't know the pre-moderns. And so couldn't know Mm. that, but there's this emerging secondary literature because there's all sorts of women now over the last 20, 30 years in political theory are well-read in the pre-moderns and so are also seeing kind of the Aristotelian elements in Wollstonecraft's thought. So she was kind of coming back, but what was missing in all of that was what I talk about as the major unsung project of Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of woman is her naming the want of male chastity as the real cause of women's immiseration. And so having had the insights I did about the sexual revolution and really, you know, the asymmetries with regard to sexual intercourse for men and women, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe she saw this. Of course she saw this. You know, of course she saw this. And I had read some of, of the early American women's rights advocates, but I hadn't read them where I needed to. And that was their look. You know, uh, Sarah Grimke had read Wollstonecraft and her work on the equality of the sexes work on marriage, she too sees this sort of sexual integrity as being a necessary precondition for equality between the sexes. And really, as, and and, you know, we haven't gotten to this, but this is sort of a key point, as engaged fatherhood, all of them, from Wollstonecraft to those early American um, women's rights advocates, saw engaged fatherhood as really the answer to sexual asymmetry. So yes, you know, voluntary motherhood, yes, not having sex when one was not ready to become potentially become a mother, but also the engagement of the father deeply in the life of the shared life of of the home, in the important work of raising children together. And you see a lot of feminists, relational feminists, especially these days, seeing how, and you see this in the life of someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, seeing how important it was to have a fully engaged spouse, a husband. In the life of the home, so she could go on to do the work that she did, and that's really what we see to be true: is that elite women are not foregoing marriage, as you know, the sexual revolution kind of uh, mm-hmm. suggests that they ought to. They should just sort of be these you know libertine women. No, they're they're marrying in the highest numbers. Elite women in the in America are marrying in numbers like the 1950s. It's astonishing hmm. because they know how important it is for raising children, how good it is for their own children. But how it takes the burden off themselves, too, when they raise children, right, so that they can have someone who's sharing in that collaborative work. Mm -hmm. Um, And not just to drive them to soccer practices and all sorts of things like that, but to teach them how to become good human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that the sad part is that the sexual revolution has really left poor women behind Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because poor women, working class women are not getting married in nearly the numbers that elite women are And this is and single motherhood is the leading cause of poverty in the United States. Um, And so, you know, liberals, progressives will point to, you know, building up the safety net. And I am fully in support of having more help for families. Absolutely. Family allowance, something like that. But the truth of the matter is that children need their fathers and women tend to very much do better when they have a man who is the father of their children who is there to support them in whatever work they're doing, whether it's in the home exclusively or outside as a full-time professional woman. Hmm. And And that's just true.
0: That might even raise men for the next generation of women to, uh, you know, trustworthy men for them to enjoy.
1: That's right. And that's the thing is we're seeing this, the flight of, you know, marriage and the flight of fatherhood means that we don't have a lot of fathers around to show men how to be good men and how do you see that well you see that in how how a man treats his wife and how he treats the the mother of Hmm. his children you see that Mm -hmm. in that kind of respect that respect for her dignity for her contribution in the world for the work that she does in the home for taking on that work as a shared partner in it as someone who takes the work of parenting just as seriously as she does is i think a really important thing and that's something Wollstonecraft saw very very clearly and articulate so beautifully. Um, Mm -hmm. She talks about, you know, the libertine man is just a poor citizen because he goes about just wanting honors for himself. Mm -hmm. But the father, the husband and the father is a man who brings kind of nobility to whatever he's doing in, in public. And I think she regarded the virtues that are built up, not only with children, but also that mothers and fathers are inculcating in themselves as they are doing the hard work of parenting and the hard work of marriage that they can then bring into whatever work that they do. And we see that, you know, mothers and fathers do bring different kinds of skills to the workplace that are very much needed today.
0: Mm-hmm. There's this, um, this, this hitch and, uh, or this two-sidedness to to what you're bringing about in this book and what you're arguing for in this book. There's this call for men to, uh, be chased and to, there, there's a call for men to sacrifice, I guess, their, uh, chasing of skirt, sorry to, to say it like that way, and also indulging in porn, um, and kind of building integrity around their sexuality and their sexual appetite. On the other side of that, uh, if, if a man foregoes, uh, those easy pleasures. On the other side of that is this thing called fatherhood. And there's this, uh, I I feel this, um, you know, it's like the other side of chastity is, is this, uh, this chivalry where, where a man, where a man can actually start to find meaning in life and then also become a better human being and a better man through his participation, through foregoing the, the sexual appetite or putting it in its place, right? Not, not cutting it off, not gelding himself, but putting the horses in, check and with that kind of um conception built within this feminism it has room for men in it 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 feels like a uh, like a kind of a lego uh where, where it's calling for or like a magnet it's it's calling for an equal and opposite um man uh it's including men and it's not well it's not um well i wouldn't say that you think that men aren't oppressing women or women aren't oppressed, it's not building upon the oppression of women, which I see is, in a lot of activism, um, treating the victim as as the hero or, or overpricing the oppressor and the oppressed as the narrative. It, while oppression is still there and needs to be fought against, it's building something positive by starting, maybe by starting as we're rational creatures that are called to perfect ourselves rather than oppressors and oppressed that are called to stop doing that you know in this kind of negative sense of just creating equality and peace we're actually called to you know engage in this huge project and the project is the child the project is the family and so it just feels really just to, to my mind intuitively it feels so well-rounded and um based uh, in a way <laughs>
1: Yeah. And the project is ourselves, too. I mean, in the sense of there is, you know, she knew she said, you know, um, how rare it is to find a man who governs his desire. Hmm. And it is hard. And she recognized how hard it was for men to do this because of the stronger libido. And so um, it's a big ask. But on the other side, and you said it quite well, on the other side, um, she talks about how if a man, really grows up because he's been taught to, you know, to uh, way, govern his desires things. from yeah. a child. Yeah, but also govern his desires to, as a child, as a woman, as a girl should too, in food and drink and these kinds of things, in doing chores around the house. I mean, all these things, we're exercising our will, we're doing things we don't want to do for the sake of others. And in a family, when you do that, when you do something for the sake of others, and it's difficult for you to do, then you're exercising, you're strengthening your will to do the right thing the next time. You're habituating these virtues that then enable you, as you grow up to be a man or to be a woman, to be looking at the other, to be free from those desires, which you can give full scope to by letting them run you, or you can learn how to govern them so Mm -hmm. that they're not at all suppressed, but they're just integrated into the person, right? And so then on the other side of that, a person who can then engage in a relationship with a woman to see her in all of her physical beauty, but also her capacities for great and deep thought, for companionship, for solidarity with her, and then build something with her and then be able to hold his own child in his arms. And those who become fathers, you know, when they are attentive fathers, it is a transformative experience. It's nothing like, you know, the kind of hedonism of porn, which is so empty, right? Right. It's something that is so transformative that makes you want to live another day, that makes you want to get up and do that horrible job, that makes you want to sacrifice. And this is something that was just basic to men prior to the sexual revolution, right? And that's not to say that, like, the 1950s are all great and there are all sorts of problems, um, all sorts of problems. The sad part is that with the sexual revolution— You know, just about the same time as the women's movement, the second wave of the women's movement, the women's movement by kind of joining arms with the sexual revolutionaries entirely abandoned that really important insight of the first wave, which was sexual integrity, which was kind of the threat of of the undisciplined male libido and what it might do to women Mm -hmm. and the importance of sexual integrity, both for women and men, but that how much harder it was for men. And they abandoned that insight altogether altogether. Um, and so when you were mentioning, you know, the kind of feminists I like, I happen to really like a lot of radical feminists like a Catherine McKinnon, who really gets within heterosexual intercourse, there is kind of tends toward male domination. Why? Because of this strong male libido, because she's a determinist. She sees that as how men are. Men are kind of lustful predators, and women mm. are these kind of innocent victims. But for Wollstonecraft, we're not our passions, we're not our desires, though they are hugely important and though they must be disciplined and though it takes parenting helping forming us and um, helping to direct our will in the right ways, we have the capacity to exercise our freedom to love ultimately. What virtue does is it, it frees us up to be benevolent, to really see others, to care for others. And that all happens in the home. But then it all of that virtue goes outside the home to be, you know, well-adjusted, basically citizens, to be wonderful friends. And again, it takes a lot of work. And so to me, it's like all the testosterone blazing through men, Right. Can instead of being outward toward violence, toward aggression, and though you know I love sports and I love my you know boys who are tackling each other all the time and all of that, it has to be directed. And so, how can it be directed? Well, yeah, toward those kinds of games and that type of thing, but also internally toward the struggle against self, right? The struggle against desire overtaking me. The the struggle against wanting to watch porn. The struggle against all of that stuff. And it's hard because it's. Our culture is so saturated with it. Huh. I would not w- wish to be um, to be a man and in, in, in struggling for virtue right now. It's incredibly mm-hmm. difficult. But on the other side, that heroic man then can be someone who does, who is free to give of himself mm-hmm. in a way that a man who's addicted to porn is just not.
0: Hmm. I that phrase "struggle against self" stands in diametrical opposition with this. <laughs> like the whole our mod of advertising and all of our, our entire economy, almost probably not, probably not, but but certainly our cultural conception of what we are. um, That's right. To struggle against the self rather than to validate yourself at every turn. um, And then end up with kind of a weaker and weaker self.
1: Right. But that's the thing. Exactly right. To understand the well-ordered soul is Hmm. so important with just seeing what that means. And so go back and read Plato's Republic. Go back and read Aristotle's Ethics and understand that we are distinct from the beasts as Wollstonecraft well saw because Mm -hmm. we have the capacity to reason and to govern our desires. Again, desires are good, passions are good, but they they Mm -hmm. need to be governed for us to be fully human beings. So which part of the self are you going for? Are you going for your full integrated self so that you can be free to do good, that you can be free to you know, to, to be a friend, to do self-sacrificing things, or, you know, do you want to be what I would say is a slave to the passions when you give way to that kind of that Hmm. self, that consuming self, who is just bent on getting the next fix or getting the next, you know, desire met. And all those desires can be met too, uh, when they're integrated into the whole.
0: Mm -hmm. So what's next? for you do you have a how long did this take monographs are usually like a seven to ten year project aren't they
1: (laughs) well i'm glad you say that i think mine was a bit bit shorter i think about five years it was a long process and i'm a part i work part-time so yeah. Um, and I was, you know, doing other things as well, mainly in constitutional law. So what's next? So I want to sort of dig deeper on Wilson rights theory. There's a lot of great work, as I mentioned, coming out kind of a renaissance of the classical legal tradition. So I want to look a little bit more at the connection between rights and duties, rights being free to do what we ought, because I think in feminism, um, mm. in uh, the women's rights movement, rights are important. And so how we understand rights are really important. And, you know, the other kinds of things I'm doing are hoping to push forward a real family policy, you know, to see that we have a very libertarian because it's, you know, certainly Christian elements at the founding, but more and more libertarian kind of law um, that the law sort of bends toward the individual um, and that we really need to be kind of reshaping Mm -hmm. culture so that we can support families because families are doing – talk about asymmetries, you know, when you're raising – children, there's a lot more burdens on you, but you're doing something for the good of everyone. And Mm -hmm. um, so Mm -hmm. the state government should be able to recognize that, employers Mm -hmm. as well. And I think if we understood ourselves as the important kind of kinship relations that we have, you know, as sons and daughters, sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers, I think we'd have a much easier time sort of thinking about law because we conceive of ourselves as autonomous individuals, as though we have no connections with others as though we have we're not we don't depend on others, right? We just kind of make our own way in the world. But it's just it's entirely false. It's just it's just not true. Whether we're vulnerable as children or, you know, as adults, we need friends. We need people, right? And so I think when um fatherhood and motherhood are just really noble callings. And I think when we see those two things as, you know, working together for the good of a child, for the good of potentially many children, I think we can sort of um, move past a lot of this identity, you know, identity stuff um, that is so like navel gazing, right? Mm, Instead of doing mm-hmm. this great work of um, <laughs> this hopeful work of, of raising children.
0: Hmm. So y- you have this book out. Do you have like a blog that I can link people to or like a sub stack or uh, <laughs> some other? No, I don't outlet? have a Substack.
1: No, you can find me at Ethics and Public Policy Center. A lot of my writing that I do um, just articles here and there, as well as sort of, you know, bigger Law Review articles are there as
0: well. Well, I thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Um, And thank you very much for writing this book. This is, uh, I I really think it's one of the most important things that I've read in like the year, few years that I've been trying to deal with these issues and think through these things. This has been incredibly insightful and important for me, and I will be pushing it uh, every chance I get on uh, my social media platforms.
1: Thank you so much. It's great
0: to be on with you. I'm going to end the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.